Hello and welcome to Autodidacts Anonymous. My name's Matt and I'm an autodidact. My name's Huddo and I too am an autodidact. Uh, welcome Huddo. So um, today we're talking about uh, capitalism. Uh, so we're, we're sort of dissecting the 16th chapter of Harari's book Sapiens. It's called The Capitalist Creed and it's all about A, the birth of capitalism but our larger theme is still the interconnection between capitalism and science and imperialism. So Indeed. today is particularly about imperialism. Indeed. And uh, in Harari's eyes, the key to capitalism is growth through credit. Right. You are correct. Yeah. You're giving, you're giving, you're giving the game away. We might as well finish the podcast now. I, <laughs> I have a few more things to say. <laughs> yeah, what, as in, can you lend me 20? <laughs> <laughs> you have the idea. <laughs> <laughs> Where's that other money that you owe me anyway? Let's not get into that <laughs> on air. <laughs> so um, Harari begins by saying that modern economic history can be described in a single word. And I was disappointed to, to hear that, Hutto, because I studied some economics at university, and uh, if they'd just given me one word, I could have gone home and been happy. Absolutely, yes. I think, um, I think it's somewhat of an oversimplification, <laughs> but it, it ties in with his general yeah. theme. So the word is growth. Indeed. Yeah, and that's been the case now for about 500 years, since the birth of capitalism. Yes. Before that, the economy didn't grow. No, that's, uh, that's the key thing. They had two key beliefs. One was that the past knew more than they knew now, and yep. etc. And the other was that things stay the same. Yes. My father was a farmer, I'm a farmer, yep. my son will be a farmer. And uh, they believed that, and because everybody believed it, it was also true. Correct. This is the key thing <clears throat> about beliefs, and it's crucial in economics. Um, in most things... There's a difference between facts and opinions. The trouble with economics is people's opinions. Yeah, a level two, level two chaotic system. Exactly. People's right. ideas about the system affect the system and make it uh, almost impossible to predict. That's right. So if everyone believes a depression is coming, a depression is coming. Yeah, even though even though the economy might be might be good. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the facts are unimportant. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Th before the the birth of capitalism, growth only growth would occasionally happen, but it would only come from population increases. Yes, and also if you discovered new lands and were able to exploit the resources of the so new I, lands. And technology did improve over a period of yeah. thousands of years, but yeah. the rate was slow. Yeah, yeah. So per capita production essentially remained static. All right. Yeah. So for example, in fifteen hundred. Global production was about $250 billion. Yep. And today, as in probably 10 years ago when the book was written, it's around $60 trillion. Yeah. So one of, my, one of my unanswerable questions we'll get to later on is, where's my part of this $60 trillion, Hutto? And I will explain that to you. Oh, good, because I, I want... I'll be happy with 1% of that. Uh-huh. Well, we'll see. And to look at the numbers another way, in 1,500 annual... Per capita production averaged $550 per person per annum. Mm -hmm. And today it's $8,800 per person per annum. So Then this, despite the fact that the population has increased 16-fold. Well, that's right. So we've had a 16-fold in, in, uh, increase in population, but we've also had a, 
I haven't done the maths, about a 16-fold increase in productivity per person as well. Yeah, so that, that works out. 256, that was quick, wasn't it? Yeah, 16 was times 16. Well, I learned my 16 times tables. Too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing to note, of course, is that an enormous number of those 8 billion people are not producing anything very much. Well, that's true, and that's why it's 8,800. That's correct, yeah. Um, you know, so that's for every single man, woman, and child on the planet. Yeah. So... What changed in the last 500 years to make this possible, Pado? And the answer is essentially the banking system, which allowed people to get credit to invest in new business, potential business ideas. And there's also a thing in the banking system, which in modern terms we call fractional reserve banking, which mm-hmm. basically means that the bank is allowed to lend out more money than what they actually have in their vaults. Yes. And in that way, the banks actually create money out of thin air. Yes. So when we think of money being created out of thin air, we tend to think of treasuries and printing presses printing out money. Yeah. But there's another way that money is made, and a lot of the money in the economy is basically made by banks through lines of credit. Yes. So um, Harari gives a good example in the book, and I was listening to the audio book, and I went through the example, and I thought, I don't really want to explain this example, and I can't be bothered going back and listening to it all over again. So I'll get Hutto to explain it when we catch up. Right. <laughs> so can you, it doesn't have to be Harari's particular example, but can you give me an example of, of how banks create money and implement this thing called the money multiplier, which basically means that the, 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 the money they lend out ends up, the money in the economy ends up being multiples of the actual money that right. exists okay. or really existed in the first place, I should say. So... Go for it, mate. Now's your time. People select uh, examples to fulfil their particular thing. There's a lecturer at Harvard who uses an example, but I won't use his. I will use Harari's because it ties in with Harari's thing. Sure. And the reason Harari selected it is because it does that. Yep. So Harari said, okay, you've got a situation where a banker's got a billion, a million dollars in his, in his vaults. Yep. And... Mrs. McDonough wants to come along and uh, start up a, a bakery. She's a good baker. She sees an opportunity around. Sure, there's a bit of bread around, but nobody's making pies and pasties and other things too. Yep. So she's got this plan, and her problem is she doesn't have a bakery. So she needs about a million dollars to get a bakery built by Joe, the contractor. So she goes along to the, the bank, uh, Rothschild or whoever it may be, yep. and says... You know, need a million dollars to build a bakery so that we can all get rich. And the banker, Rothschild, has no objection to getting rich. She sells her idea to him. He thinks, yeah, I'd pies and pasties, I'd like some. I can see that a lot of other people would. So he lends her a million dollars. Yeah. Fine. She then lends that, pays that to Joe the contractor to build her bakery. Yeah. Joe the contractor puts a million dollars back in the bank. So the bank now has one million dollars in, in its vaults. Yep. It's owed a million dollars by Mrs. McDonough, mm. and it owes a million dollars to Joe. Joe's a contractor. Yeah, correct. So, so just so, just so I get can understand this, the bank has a million dollars in its vault. Yep. But Joe, the contractor, also has a million dollars, doesn't he? Correct, because if that million dollars, for example, came from Joe yeah. in the first place, the bank owes Joe a million dollars. 
the bank's got a million dollars in the vault. Joe's got an asset of a million dollars. The bank has a liability of a million dollars, and that million dollars is in the vault. Everybody's happy. Yep. Once we've gone around the circle, we now have the situation where the bank owes Joe two million dollars. Yeah. Still only has one million dollars in the vault. Yeah. Mrs. McDonough has a bakery which has yet to produce a pie. Mm. She owes the bank a million dollars. But if the bank needs, if Joe says, I want two million dollars, the only thing the bank can do is give him a million and say, Mrs. McDonough, you owe us a million dollars. And she says, ain't got it. All they got is a bakery. So the whole thing depends on everybody being willing to wait until she's producing lots of pies, produces the money, etc. So it's all about belief in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and provided you believe in the future and are prepared to keep issuing the credit until the future pays back, everything is good. Yep, yep. So what happens, let's go around, let's go around again yep. to bring about a multiplier effect. We've been around the loop once. Let's yep. go around twice. So let's say Mrs. McDonough realises after she's spent the million that she hasn't got everything she needs right. to get her business up and running. Can you yeah. talk, talk us through that? Yeah, sure. Okay. So she's producing the bakery, etc., and that's all good, but she realises that really she ought to have included a pizza oven as well. Got to have pizza. Got to have pizza, exactly right. A big oversight. So and they cost a million dollars, just do. because it's a nice round number for our example. <laughs> a so, million dollar pizza oven. So back to the Lost Child's Bank and, you know, could I have another million dollars I need, you know, the pizza baking thing to add on. Rothschild likes the idea of pizza too, so <laughs> Joe, that original million dollars goes to Mrs. McDonough again, who pays it once again to Joe to construct a nice pizza oven for and all the rest of it. Yeah. Joe puts it back in the bank, so the bank now has one million dollars yeah. in its vaults. It owes Joe three million dollars. Yeah. Mrs. McDonough owes the bank $2 million. Yep. The only actual money in the system continues to be $1 million, yeah. but... Well, no, this, no the, uh, see, I disagree with you a bit there, because Joe has $2 million, yep. and the bank and the bank has the original million. So there's yep. actually $3 million in the system now, even though there's a mil- Co- only a million dollars in cash. Correct. Yeah. So there's $3 million of money now in the system. Yeah. The cash or gold or whatever it may be is only $1 million in the vault. Mm. And Mrs. McDonough, still, all she has is a bakery, but it can now make pizzas too. Yeah. And lots of profits I expected yeah. to ensue. So this money that's been created, this $2 million, which seemingly has come out of thin air Correct. from the original million, is essentially a valuation of what we expect Mrs. McDonough to Correct. make in the future. Yeah. And this is why you take, for example, Argentina. Argentina back in 1900 was one of the spectacular potential growth countries. I remember reading in 1900, Argentina was the wealthiest country in the world and Australia was number two. And then when we got to 2000, Australia was, uh, I'm going to say 10 or something. And Argentina was like 145. Not only that, the point is that Argentina has defaulted on its debt many times. So they lend money to Argentina because it looks so... That's a good thing. Well, it's such a wealthy place. That's right. It proceeds to do stupid things, consumption, not pay its debt. 
Yeah. And then you'd say, well, why would anybody lend to it again? But the yeah. answer is, it's still got the potential. Yeah. The potential hasn't gone away, so we lend money again, and once yeah. again, they don't pay. Yeah, so, uh, so until you get to the point where, you, okay, I'm not going to lend them more, any more money Correct. because they don't pay it back. Correct. Yeah, and so then the economy of Argentina starts to, to crumble. So it's, it's never about the past, and it's never about whether they paid it and whether your past assumptions worked. It's always about your belief in, in the, the future. In the future, yeah. So, yeah, Harari makes that point. So he, he, he says that this only works, this whole system, because we all have trust in the future. Yes. And this is the sole backing for most of the money in the world. Yes. Which is really interesting, I yeah. thought. So in, when he was looking at the development of money, the key belief was that I believe that you believe the money has value. Yeah. So therefore, I will believe. Yeah. So not only do we have a shared delusion in the value of actual money in, in things that exist, Correct. we've taken another level and we've got a shared delusion or shared, not, I shouldn't say delusion, but shared belief yep. that future money is going to be more abundant. Correct. So let's not wait. Let's start doing it now. Exactly. Yeah. So we have a shared belief that the pie will grow. Yeah, yeah. So in the days before growth, before this sort of, thinking, it was very hard to finance new enterprises because um, Rothschild, if Mrs. McDonough went to Rothschild, he'd say, oh, well, this isn't going to work. You and got, uh, he wouldn't lend, wouldn't lend her the money. And so got, none of this would happen. Correct. You've got no collateral. It's not going to happen. And humans were trapped in this predicament for thousands of years. Thousands of years. So in the modern day, money can represent and be converted into imaginary things that we trust will exist in the future, not mm. just things that exist today. That's right. This is done by using a special kind of money called credit, which yep. you mentioned, which actually enables us to build the present at the expense of the future. Yes. So, you know, the $2 million that we presume is going to be created by Mrs. McDonough goes back to sort of, we've, we've counted it already. In yes. Sense. You know, certainly Joe the trader has because he's got it in his account. That's right. Yeah. I mean, talk about not counting your eggs until they've had it. <laughs> yeah. We got the... But as long as... As long as it, yeah, it's not irrational because it's, it's actually very rational, but it, it's rational, but also based on uncertainty and unpredictability, Correct. and that's why it can boom and bust. Correct. Um, the basic assumption behind this imaginary system is that future resources are guaranteed to be more abundant than those we have today. Yes. It allows us to build things in the present with future income. Yes. In the past, credit was around. But it wasn't much used because Rothschild wasn't too keen on uh, spending a million dollars on a bakery because he knew that it wouldn't make any money. Correct. Because two, two things. One was the belief that the pie wasn't going to grow. And in fact, they probably believed that it was going to get smaller because they believed in an ancient time where things were so much better and things Correct. are getting worse. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so you got the idea that you only got a bigger slice of the pie by taking it from someone else. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's really the next point. So people considered the total amount of wealth to be a zero-sum game. Yeah. Uh, growth wasn't a thing, so you could only flourish by impoverishing someone else. So if I'm the king of England, the only way I got richer is by robbing the king of France. Exactly. And right. that, uh, that kind of stuff happened a lot. <laughs> Which is what Machiavelli was saying about the only true study of princes is war. Yeah. Um, that's the only way you can get some more of the pie. Yeah, yeah. It's not about... Good lending practices. Yeah. So the pie never got bigger. It was just cut in different ways. Um, now, that one of the effects that had on society's thinking was that 
if you are rich, you are by definition essentially exploiting somebody else and taking their money That's because that was really the only way you could yeah, you, you could get rich. You must have taken it from someone else. Yeah. So by definition, you're impoverishing somebody yeah. else. And so in the culture was this sort of belief that being rich was an immoral thing. Yes. Credit can be defined as the difference between today's pie and tomorrow's pie. If the pies stay the same, then there's no room for credit. Yes. And that's why there was no credit, really, to yes. speak of back in the day. And again, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy thing. Yeah. If you don't extend credit, the pie you does don't not grow get bigger, which supports the idea that the pie doesn't get bigger. Yeah, because entrepreneurs can't gain their funding. They might have a great idea. The bakery might be profitable, but Rothschild's yeah. just like not used to thinking that way. Yeah. He's going, ah, oh, nah. There's yeah. no money in. There's no money in pies. No. <laughs> I wonder if he knew about pizza. <laughs> um, stagnation was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, then, when the scientific revolution took place, Europeans for the first time realised, oh man, maybe, maybe things can improve. Maybe progress is actually something that we can achieve yeah you've got three things coming together and i don't want to jump the gun on you here but one of them was that idea of ignorance that we can actually learn useful things now that was not known in the past yes it's such a different mindset because you know in many of europe most uh thinkers would would um bow to aristotle for example yes so they would assume so aristotle said that Heavier objects fall more quickly than lighter objects, i.e. a cannonball and a feather, yep. which isn't actually true. Right. But for hundreds, thousands of years, uh, people just said, well, hang on, Aristotle knows a lot better. Who am I to question Aristotle? Yeah. And then guys like Galileo and so forth came along and started doing some experiments and going, oh, hang on, you know, they all fall at the same, same rate. Right. Yeah. Um, so this mind shift had implications, obviously, for science, but yes. it also had implications for everything, yes. including economics. So if all of a sudden you believe that progress is possible, you can believe things like geographical discoveries yes. and technical inventions and organisational developments such as double-entry bookkeeping, which was invented in the 15th century, yes. uh, can actually help you increase your the wealth, the yes. size of the pie. Yes. And this was revolutionary, Hutter. Absolutely. And it can also give you better troops so you win more wars. So there's that aspect. So you can still get money the old school way if uh, you want. Absolutely. <laughs> but you see, in the past, the emperors were not looking to scientists to invent better weapons. You know, the Chinese invented gunpowder and just used it for fireworks. Yeah. Because nobody was thinking that, hey... What were they, what were they thinking? Don't they realise gunpowder should be used for killing innocent people? Still stupid. <laughs> in there stabbing them to death. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So um, the Europeans were getting a bit frustrated around this time because the Ottomans controlled the trade routes to the east where yes. a lot of the spices and, and, and wealth, silk and things like that, which yep. the Europeans found out about and said, we want this stuff. But it was expensive because the Ottomans controlled the, the trade routes. Yeah. So the Europeans started thinking, oh, hang on, we can actually progress and change things. We can find an alternative uh, route to the east don't have to interfere with what the Ottomans are doing. They can still continue to use their trade routes and we'll use other ones. So yeah. we will build up our section of the pie without interfering with theirs. Yeah. So that's, that's an important change of mindset. And, of course, it ties in with the fact that improved navigation coming from science 
enabled them to start using sea routes instead of having to go yeah. over the land. Yeah, so a lot of things had to come together. Yes. Uh, particularly as we've talked about science, imperialism, capitalism, the big three of this time period that we're talking about. So in 1776, one of a world-shaking book came along. It was uh, written by uh, Adam Smith, a Scotsman. The Scotsmen like their money. Yep. Uh, he published The Wealth of Nations, which is probably the most important economics book of all time. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, oh, sorry, I thought you were going to say something. No, no, I would agree. <laughs> he argued, Smith argued that an increase in profits for entrepreneurs led to increased investment and employment. Mm. Okay. And therefore increased the wealth for everybody. Mm, revolutionary this was, idea. Well, that's right. One of the most revolutionary ideas in history. For the first time, greed is good became an idea. Mm. So if I act in my self-interest, that's a good thing because yep. I'm actually benefiting everybody. Yep. Now, that was the case from an economic perspective, but it then filtered through to moral and political perspectives and all sorts of different ways of, of thinking. Um, Smith denied the, the traditional contradiction between wealth and morality. Yep. So it's okay to be rich now, yep. according to Smith. Um, the rich are actually the most useful and benevolent people in society. I'm sure rich people love hearing that. Uh, yes, there's, it's a popular one with many of them. <laughs> <laughs> Not very popular with the poor people. But... <laughs> um, now, this all sounds very utopian and ideal, but it all it's a theoretical way of thinking, and it all depends on the rich using their profits for investment and employment. Yes. Uh, rather than wasting it on non-productive uses, such as hoarding it under the bed. Indeed. Which is what they always traditionally did. So... The Egyptian pharaohs, for example, they would put most of their wealth. It wasn't enough for them to have all the wealth while they were living. They also took it with them after they died. Absolutely. <laughs> you can't get any stingier than that. If you not only build a pyramid, you insist on being buried with the treasure. And if you're not, and the Chinese wanted to be buried with their wives as well. I mean, it's a... um, the first commandment of the capitalist creed is that profit must be invested into new production. Now that happens a lot, doesn't happen with all profit, of course, and that's where you, you start to get some room to perhaps put some socialistic yeah. ideas in there, but that, that all comes down the track. So we've now distinguished capital from wealth. So capital is the money that we're putting into investment. Yes. And wealth is the money that we have or, you know, or perhaps the, the money that we're, we're hoarding under the bed. Yeah. Okay. So this, we live in a, we live in a capitalist Society. We don't live in a wealthist society because right. capitalism is based on this idea of money going back into income producing yes. assets and investments. So ancient nobility used to hoard their wealth, like as we were talking about with the pharaohs. Um, they spent a lot on wars. Yes. And they used to spend a lot on bling. Yes. <laughs> Status symbols. Yeah, that's right. Um, the modern My pyramid's bigger than your pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> The modern-day capitalist actually spends more of their capital on further increasing production, which is what we want, yeah. um, through business deals or investing in stock and bond markets or starting new businesses or whatever, whatever it happens to be, loaning it to somebody that does start a new business. Financing yep. um, a trip to discover somewhere. Well, yes. Yes, that's true. Um, we're, we're, we're racing to Mars at the moment. Um, even governments have a capitalist mindset these days, so... An example is travelling to Mars, I suppose. I suppose at some point they're thinking, oh, well, maybe we can exploit some riches and get a return on our investment by going to Mars. Anything you can tax. 
Yeah, and a tr more traditional example, I suppose, is a, is a government investing in a port to make it easier for the local businesses and factories to export their goods. Yeah. So hopefully that means that these factories now make more money, yeah. which means they pay more tax and the government's better off. Everybody wins. Absolutely. Um, I guess another example is investing in education. So there's not a, a return on investment in the short term, yeah. but if you've got an invested population, then they should be more productive, sorry, an educated population, they should be more productive. If they're earning a higher income in the future, yeah. then the government once again reaps the benefits of higher taxation. And you can use exactly the same argument for healthcare, vaccination, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, some areas, I mean, building a port, it's easier to see the connection between that and future profits yes. than perhaps some of these other areas like, like healthcare, for example. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there would be a return on investment in, in, in healthcare, as you say. Um, so capitalism's principal tenet is that economic growth is the supreme good because on that economic growth, all the other goods are based. Yeah. So things yep. like justice, freedom and happiness all yep. depend on it. Yeah, and this, this again is a huge change in mindset, but I must admit... I, I find it difficult not to find it convincing. I do not find virtue in poverty, which many of the great teachers, Jesus and Buddha and others, tended to imply. Mm. Um, I, I find poverty is misery without any great virtue attached to it. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think those religious ideas are a reflection of the time yes. in which they came about. Because I didn't realise that... Uh, Wealth was considered to be so immoral before the capitalist revolution. Yep. Um, but apparently it was. So when Jesus is talking about um, love and money being the root of all evil, um, it's still got an awful lot of truth in it. We're not suggesting that capitalism obviates that. Yeah. But there is this other side to things. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. So this new capitalist ideology slash religion, according to Harari's definition of religion, has affected science greatly. Yes. Um, governments and businesses invest in scientific research to increase production and profits down the track. Yes. Projects that won't lead to economic growth have difficulty finding somebody to fund them. Always the challenge. You've yeah. got to show the government that going to Mars will increase the tax base someday. Yeah. So the history of modern science must include capitalism. Yes. Uh, the history of capitalism must also take science into Absolutely. account. Absolutely, increase productivity. Because it turns out it's the scientists and the engineers, so science and technology, which essentially foots the bill in the long run yes. for the printing of money that we do today. Yes. Um, they, the science has to provide the return. Yeah. Um, I didn't realise I didn't realise it in those explicit terms either. I mean, science and technology in a sense, has created all the wealth in the world or footed the bill for all the wealth in the world or most of the wealth in the world. Most of it. Certainly yeah. the growth that we've had since, you know, 1500. Uh, well, discovering um, three continents is kind of... Well, imperialism as well, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Harari wrote this book, Sapiens, around the time of the GFC. Yeah. 2000, and, I can't remember what year it was, 2010, let's say, he wrote it on in 2008. Um, after the GFC, governments and central banks we're printing money out of thin air and pumping credit into the system yes. to keep the, the system afloat and hoping against hope that the scientists and engineers would bail them out at some point. 
we keep pushing that canned up the road. So, okay, we've issued 80 years worth of credit, but what's the harm in issuing another 20 years worth? Yeah, and it's a good illustration of perhaps sometimes the downside of optimism because I think a lot of the justification for not doing anything about the environment is the thing, well, I don't want to spend you know, $50 billion fixing the environment when the scientists will probably come up with something in 30 years. The day after I've spent my last dollar, the scientists will just fix it by, by pressing a button and you can get yourself into all sorts of trouble with too much optimism. You certainly can. Yeah. Um, so there are real challenges in this. And there is obviously a limit to how far out one should push credit. Yeah. But what is that limit? We don't know because it's all based on the future. Indeed, and we're still exploring it and we may learn some painful lessons. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what happened as this sort of thinking started to filter through society? Um, the powers that be, the political elite, the kings, the generals, they started to adopt this way of thinking as well. Yes. And even more than that, you, th you really had a situation where your wealthy merchants and businessmen started to become the, uh, the ruling elite. So, for example, in Britain, which was, you know, where this stuff, you know, took off in a big way, um, you know, you had a democracy and you had parliament making the decisions and these guys were the bankers and the lawyers and yep. the guys that, you know, were, uh, thought this way. One of the things we'll see in the ascent of money is how it transferred from the landowning guys who yeah. were rich aristocracy yeah. to the wealthy merchants and bankers, as you yeah. say. Yeah, and, and, and the, the big difference is growth. Yes. Um, the, the landowners weren't expecting growth. They no. were, I mean, they were doing fine, you That's know, right. how things were. Yeah, they, they were traditionalists, keep things the same, we're doing fine as we are. Yeah. So in a nutshell, the European domination of the world after 1500 was financed by credit. Yes. Uh, rather than by the traditional taxes. Yes. Uh, and it was increasingly driven by capitalists rather than political rulers. Yes, the belief in growth. Yeah. So in 1484, and that's an interesting year because we all know the date 1492, so this mm -hmm. is eight years before that, Christopher Columbus requested the King of Portugal finance his mission westward to try and find a new trade, trade route to Maybe. East Asia. And the King of Portugal had a medieval mindset, I suppose, and he said, Nah, I'm not giving you that money because the ship's going to sink and I'm going to lose all my money. That's right. I'm going to pursue another war, which is a much safer option. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. For him, probably it was. Well, he saw it that way. Yeah. And um, Columbus was, uh, you know, turned turned away. But then he, he didn't give up. He showed a real sort of early capitalist uh, mindset Absolutely. here. Hello. He just kept knocking on doors. He kept knocking on doors for eight years. He went to Italy, France, England, back to Portugal. Yep. <laughs> And he was rejected each time. Then he went to Spain. And uh, Spain had just um, evicted the last of the Muslims from their, uh, from their uh, territory. Yeah. And they'd united as a country. So Car uh, Aragon and Castile had come together with yes. the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabella. Yes. And Isabella was on board. She wanted to finance Columbus's trip. Absolutely. Yeah, apparently her more so than Ferdinand. Yes, yes, she, um, for whatever reason, she was more amenable to Columbus's ideas. Maybe she wanted to buy Maybe she thought he was sexy. Maybe, maybe she wanted to uh, buy his new encyclopedia he was going to sell in his <laughs> door knocking. Or... Maybe she wanted to um, prove to Ferdinand that, uh, you know, she could make better decisions than Ferdinand. Be interesting, well, I'd like to be their marriage counsellor find out what was going on there. Absolutely. Uh, the minds of women is still a puzzle to us even now. <laughs> <laughs> um... 
So, in the end, of course, she hit the jackpot far beyond her wildest dreams. Absolutely. One of the best investment decisions ever made. Yeah. So, over the course of the next 100 years, people were very much on board now. They're like, oh, my God, Isabella's hit the jackpot. Spain now controls the Americas and they're, they're... they're finding mountains made of silver and things like that. Yep. I want to invest in things and make money too. Absolutely. Yeah. How much more is there? Yeah. So there was more money or more capital floating around because there was all this wealth coming in from the new world. Yep. Um, but more importantly than that, there was a higher trust in the yes. future. Yes. The idea of growth has been proven by past success. And this led to what we could call the magic circle of imperial capitalism. Yes. So increased credit, i.e. Isabella's loan to Christopher Columbus, leads to new discoveries, i.e. the discovery of the Americas, which can lead to new colonies, which can lead to more profits, which makes everybody trust these things a lot better, which then in turn leads to even more credit. Exactly right. Okay, and then the rest is history. Hello, that's what we've been. That's the world we've been living in now for you know a few hundred years. Yep. Now, did, and of course, all this was happening in Europe. Yes. We did not see the Ottomans and the Chinese and Japanese, etc., getting on board with this idea. I was always aware that the discovery of the New World was um, a real turning point in terms of the rise of Europe. What I wasn't aware of was the invention of capitalism being such a big deal in the right. rise of Europe. Um, the other thing that happened is around that time is that Asia were still reeling from the Mongol invasions. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, the Mongols completely destroyed, I think Baghdad it was, which was a big, big yeah. cultural and civic centre and, and economic centre in the Muslim world. And I think... The Mongols killed every man, woman, child, and animal in Baghdad. Just completely, right. there wasn't a Baghdad anymore. Yeah. So, and the population of certain areas of Asia still hasn't recovered from the but Mongol invasion. Yeah, and also there's a plague around that time as well. Yeah. So yeah. you know, it was all, and the, but the Mongols were a big part of spreading that well, yeah. because they were catapulting people, dead bodies from the plague. They were catapulting into cities during yeah. sieges. Yeah, first attempted. Yeah, so you don't, you, don't mess, you don't mess with the Mongols, mate. <laughs> Actually, I don't think they were the first, but uh, they practiced it on a larger scale when they... Weren't the first to what? Shoot the plague-infested body yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, all right. Well, I'm not sure on that, but oh, I, I always, always understood the Mongols. I'd have to check out my history of Hannibal, but I think... Yeah, I think, I think you're wrong on that, and you get a zero. I'm going to put that in the unanswerable questions, and you... Hang on, I'm going to take one off. Couldn't we at least have a fact check first? <laughs> no, I'm going with my gut on this one. Okay. So, as a side note, these expeditions were still very risky because it was easy to get attacked by pirates or you, you know, get bad weather and your ship sinks and whatever. So, okay, there was all this wealth to be made, but I still don't want to lose everything I'm putting into it. So, most of the time, these expeditions didn't produce a profit. So what started happening was people started pooling their resources together. So if you can give an example of that with the Columbus's three ships uh, of people pooling their resources together to to spread their risk. Sure. And it's, um, you know, Columbus has been successful. He's gone and discovered that there's something out there. So everybody else wants to finance a ship to send out. But if Matt finances a ship and Hutto finances a ship... Isabella finances. She wants to do another one because she's hit the jackpot. Um, 
And Ferdinand used to say that he'll get onto this too, so, you know. Oh, yeah, Ferdinand's <laughs> on board now. Yeah, I think of him. So, you know, we, we've got ships going out, but my ship don't come back. You know, this was a bad day. I'm ruined. Um, yeah, I'm not seeing the problem here, hello. My, my ship's fine, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but I've seen the problem. And, so, and, and not only have I seen the problem, but, you know, um, Ferdinand, he's seen the problem too. Yeah. So, all of a sudden... The joint stock company, wonderful thing. It means that Matt and Hutto and Ferdinand and Isabella can all join and form a company. We can send out four ships. Yeah. And if only three of them come back, we still get rich. Yeah, so I, I now own 25% of a company that owns four ships yeah. rather than owing 100% of one ship. That's the one. Yeah. The risk looks so much better. Yeah. So in the process we've just outlined, that's how... Um, Limited liability joint stock companies came about. Yeah. So we've talked about the joint stock, i.e., a shared ownership of a of an enterprise. Yeah. You're in it. You have you got an accounting background? Why don't you give us a bit of a rundown on limited liability? Hello. Yeah. Well, limited liability is um, okay. Got got four ships. Yep. Got the four of us investing, but it's a problem because the ships cost a bit more than we can put in. So we're back to Rothschild's bank, and he lends us some extra money, but we're going to have to pay him back, yeah. which is no problem when our ships come back. Yeah. So off it goes, the ships come out, bad weather, really bad storms. And all How many days. ships have we lost? We've lost three. Three yeah. ships? Yeah. We, we should have stuck with the old system where my, my one came back and you and Ferdinand miss out. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's bad news. And what's more... Ruddy Rothschild's bank still wants his money for us. Oh, he's unbelievable, that yeah, bloke. But it's okay. We only invested a given amount. And we can't be sued for more than that. Yeah, the company's broke. Yeah. But we're okay. But you and I are still in clover. Exactly. Yeah. Now, Rothschild's got a problem, but that's his problem. Yeah. So this might sound a bit dodgy. It's like, hang on, you're not really paying back your debts. But what it does do is it promotes investment promotes risk-taking, promotes entrepreneurial activities, exactly. which, according to Smith's uh, principles, increases the wealth exactly. for everybody. And so Matt, Hutto, Isabella live to fight another day. Yeah. We fight another company. Yeah. And, and the next one becomes successful. The next one we pay back Mr. Rothschild. Exactly. We're so. buying pizzas from Mrs. McDonough yeah. every yeah. night. We're getting Uber Eats pizzas, and she's making good money. And jeez, we're living the dream, and, and Rothschild is happy. He charged us more interest rates for the second loan, of course, because yeah. we've been bad the first time. Yeah. But he got his money back, and he got more interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he's happy with us. Everyone's happy. So we'll... Jeez, we get we get up to Ferdinand and Isabella's court and we have a good night on the booze. Absolutely, <laughs> and uh, then we decide that we could get involved in politics too. <laughs> um, so over the years, the financial system in Western Europe got increasingly more sophisticated, and it started allowing them to raise very large amounts of credit at short notice. Yes, and to, and to put it out there and, and, and make yeah. more wealth. So you you got two things: large amounts of credit. At short notice. Yeah. These are two powerful ideas. Yeah, for sure. So exploration and conquest could be financed far more efficiently than any empire previously could. Yes. Or any empire even of the day could, to be honest, any government at the time. Um, Spain versus the Netherlands around this time is a really interesting uh, yeah. analogy. So um, 
In the 16th century, Spain was the largest and most powerful empire on the globe because yep. they, they were exploiting the Americas. Absolutely. And the Netherlands was a small and windy swamp lacking any natural resource to speak of apart from a few herring. About <laughs> 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 that. Um, I'll edit out this gap because it's not... When I've when I got to find my place, I'll just sure. edit out the gap. Um, and the Netherlands was actually a colony of Spain at the time as well. Yep. So if you're placing your bets at the time, you know, who's going better, Spain or the Netherlands? Oh, absolutely. You'd say Spain's going to you know, become wealthy and the Netherlands absolutely. means nothing. But it actually went the complete that's, opposite that's way. Right. And, and the King of Spain, of course, is also tied in with the Catholic Empire, etc. The Netherlands, they've let this Protestant thing in. It's yeah. not looking good for them. Yeah. So in 1568, the Protestant Dutch revolted against the Spanish crown. Not only did they win that war, but they also replaced the Spanish as the richest state in Europe. How's that? How's that? You wouldn't be happy if you were well, Ferdinand and Isabella were dead by this stage, but they wouldn't have been impressed, Hutto. Indeed not. Um, how were the Dutch able to pull this off? Do you know? Well, indeed, I do. <laughs> I oh, you've book. read the chapter. I read the book. They did it by using credit. Indeed. <laughs> they... They hired mercenaries to do the fighting for them, so they went. <laughs> I thought that was smart. I didn't realise that, but it's like, well, we're too busy making money. We're not going to bother fighting this war, so yeah. we'll hire some mercenaries to do that for us. Um, <coughs> and the Dutch themselves took off to the seas in ever-increasing numbers. Indeed. And if you look into the history of that, what happened was some Dutch people were working for Portugal because Portugal revolutionised the, um, the sailing industry. Yes. And the Dutch went down there, essentially stole the Portuguese secrets, and then went back home and implemented them. Uh-huh. So they were good; very, became very good. Um, what's the word for a sailing uh... navigator? Yeah, sort of yeah, guy. navigators will do. Um, financiers assisted the Dutch with building their ships and taking off to the sea. Yep. And the reason they did, the main reason, and you know, almost hundred percent of the reason, was that they basically had established a reputation of being thrifty. Yep. Shrewd and hardworking. Yeah. Now they were Protestant. They were Calvinists. Now the Calvinists are renowned Protestant work ethic. You know, careful with your money. Yeah. You know, um, prudent. Prudent. Yeah. Prudent yeah. with your debts. You, you're going to pay it back. Yeah. Prudent. One of the four cardinal virtues or something. Yeah. Always yeah. amused me that one. Whereas the Spanish king was a bit the opposite, um, and kings can be like this because. A, he squandered his wealth on wars, yeah. particularly against the Dutch. Yeah, old mindset. Um, and they used their finance armies and fleets. To, um, oh, so, sorry, they had used their armies and fleets to secure a number of lucrative trade routes. Ah, sorry, that's wrong. So I'll edit that out. Um, yeah, the Spanish king had a reputation for squandering his wealth. Um, the Dutch used their Finance armies and fleets to secure a number of lucrative trade routes and made huge profits. When they were paid their loans, they strengthened their trust with their financiers. Absolutely. And um, the king of Spain, he didn't just squander his wealth, he also failed to repay his credit. Well, that's right. So um, if you're the king, it's good to be the king. And if you borrow a million dollars and your ship sink and the, and the banker asks you for his money... You just trump up some charges of treason, lock the banker in jail, you know, cut his yeah. head off, and uh, then the next banker is a little bit more reluctant to deal with you. Indeed he is. In fact, if you're not careful, he moves out of the country and decides to set our base in the Netherlands instead. Yeah. And 
the Dutch, they really got this idea of growing a pie. Yeah. They even grew their own land. Well, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I spent a couple of years living in the Netherlands, as you know, and they're an extraordinary, extraordinary breed. I mean, they, they essentially reclaimed their land. Yeah. Um, and they were much more sort of... Um, equal society than most of the world at the time because aristocrats and nobility owned all the land in Europe. But if you go and make your own land, then, you know, it's not owned by the king and you can, you you know, you, and you're all helping each other to reclaim this land and you're all, you're all in a joint sort of fight against the tide. Yes. And you help each other and you you get this sort of real community thing happening. They say eggs in one basket. Yeah. So... The Dutch won the trust of the financial system by being sticklers about repaying their loans. Yes. And the other thing they had was an independent judicial system, which ties in with that example. So, you yes. know, they weren't going off and arresting bankers when they owed them money and, and cutting their heads off or yeah. what, what have yeah. you. Capitalism needs respect for individual property. For private property, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it has to be built into the legal system. And capital flows into states that uphold these, yes. these uh, tenants. Um in a nutshell, it's better to do business with merchants than kings. Indeed. Which well, is really, I thought that was interesting as well, because uh, remember the, the old Bearings Bank from London? Yes. You know, we are the bankers to the to the royal family. Yes. And you sort of think, well, after reading this, I'm thinking, well, that may not be a very good business practice. Indeed. But, yeah. um, of course, Britain England did things rather differently, which is why they beat yeah. Napoleon. Yeah, they didn't have um, autocracy. Yes. You know, you, you, you didn't just get beheaded at the whim of the of the monarch. The, well, well, back in Henry VIII's day, maybe you did. Yeah, well, they well they already had their civil war, which had seen Charles deposed and the Parliament established. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas uh, France, when they went bankrupt, he had to call Parliament after 150 years. Yeah, because he couldn't pay his debts. He couldn't pay his debts. So. <laughs> It was Dutch merchants that built the Dutch Empire, not the Dutch state. Correct. Important difference. In 1602, they established the VOC, which is uh, the Dutch initials for the Dutch East India Company. Mm-hmm. Um, the East Indians being, of course, what we know. East India Indonesia. is Indonesia. Yeah. Um, so they did that to set up trade works in Indonesia, this company. But I think things got a bit more complicated than they originally thought because... They had to secure their trade routes. Yeah. And they ended up setting up forts, hiring mercenary, hiring mercenaries and engaging in open warfare with the locals. So now you've got a private company acting in a way that governments or empires have traditionally done. Indeed. And you you had the armed merchant ship, which uh, is a concept we've done away with now. But if we get too much more piracy happening and the US ceases to um, protect navigation, we could see armed merchants coming back into the Yeah, that's yeah, a good point. Um, so a private company had established an empire in this case uh, and the VOC ruled in the whole of Indonesia, well, pretty much all of it for nearly 200 years. Yeah. Uh, then what happened is the Dutch state assumed control in 1800 so that the government took over, if you yeah. like, and they ruled Indonesia up until 1950. Yeah, and uh, you know the Indonesians didn't get their independence till after World War Two, so it was interesting. So the Dutch were occupied during World War Two. They didn't so much have a Second World War as a Second World Occupation. Yeah. Um, 
and they, they finally liberate themselves and then they go and fight in Indonesia to try and keep them <laughs> to try and keep their colonies and they lost a bit of support back home because people were going, hang on, we can't be doing this stuff. <laughs> and, and their biggest opposition wasn't Japan or China nor Indonesia. Their biggest opposition, of course, was the British East India Company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And the British ended up winning that over the journey, but we'll, we'll get to that. So, well, in fact, we're about to get to it now. So by around 1700, the Dutch had lost their position as Europe's financial engine. I did a bit of reading on this. Turned out there was a bit of dodginess happening oh, in, yeah. the, in the higher levels of the VOC. They, oh, were, yeah. they were, you know, stealing money yes, and blah, blah, blah. Yes, yes. The other thing was they got kicked out of Japan. So Japan isolated. Yes. And they kicked them out. So that must have been lucrative for them. So anyway, things just started to, to dwindle. Um, and France... And then we have the rise of France and Britain from yes. an empirical point of view, imperial point of view, I should say. Um, and Britain finally, over the course of between 1700 and 1800, started to, they won about six wars against the French and, yes. and managed to become the preeminent uh, world empire. Um, but they did it by winning the trust of the financial system as well, whereas the French were unable to. So we've got Spain versus the Netherlands happening all over again. Yeah with the French and the British. And a lot of that ties in with the system of government that these, these four countries the, had. Um, so they, took, they talk about Dutch Anglo exceptionalism yes. around this time because they had democracies and republics. Yes. Well, Holland was a republic. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because uh, the French Revolution in many ways was brought on by the collapse of the, the Bank of France and the King of France's yeah. treasury, etc. Yeah. Um, and Napoleon basically made the same mistake. Yeah. Um, the British outplayed him in raising capital, paying debts and stuff like this. And, and that's why he called him a nation of shopkeepers. That's why he called them a nation of shopkeepers. Yeah, which he, which he meant um, per, per, not prerogatively. Derogatory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, purgatory. Yeah. Pejoratively. Yeah, pejoratively. Yes. The that's the word I'm after. So I'll edit that out. So he meant that pejoratively, they're a nation of shopkeepers and we're real men that fight wars, but uh, the British ended up winning by being a nation of shopkeepers, if you like. Yep. So similar to the VOC, the British East India Company set up trading posts in India, was their jewel in their crown, and eventually ruled an Indian empire. In 1858, the British government took it over. This is why Napoleon referred to the British as the nation of shopkeepers. Yep. Because merchants run the show. Yep, and by 1858, merchants were well established in Parliament too. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, now, during the 19th century, capitalists relinquished direct control of empire because... So I was wondering, okay, so why did the VOC and the, and the British East India Company relinquish control of their empires? Turns yeah. out they didn't really need to do it anymore. Exactly. Because they'd infiltrated government and they knew the government was going to look after their interests. Absolutely. So they could have their interests looked after without the expense of doing it. Exactly. Yeah. So they ruled the corridors of power in London, Amsterdam and Paris. They were concerned that's what governments exist for. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's similar to our sort of mentality it now. It hasn't changed much now. Yeah. So even in Paris, because they had a revolution there. So um, it started becoming like that in France as and, well. And it's what we're seeing in China, um, where originally this was the Chinese Communist Party looking after the workers. Yeah. And nowadays they're looking after the rich Chinese. They're looking after the party. 
Yeah. So to become elite in China, you really have to be a member of the party, right. and the party really looks after. And, and there's a lot of party members. Uh, I, I don't know how many there are. Right. I'm going to say 100 million. I just made that number up, but there's a lot. Yeah. But there's still a small subset but, of but the population. If, but if you're a labour lawyer in China, you have a very hard time. Yeah. Trying to enforce the labour laws. Yeah, they're not looking after the workers no. anymore. Yeah. Um, now, what happened with time is governments actually started doing the bidding of big money. Yes. And the classic example of that is the opium war in China oh, between yes. Britain and China in 1840. So um, the Brits had become used to um, growing opium in India and selling it to the Chinese and made yeah. a nice pretty penny because there wasn't anything the Chinese wanted from the Brits. So that they had a poor balance of trade with China. Yes. Then they finally discovered, oh, they like opium. They were getting addicted to it. Yeah. And... Uh, the Chinese government put a stop to it. They realised what was happening. And uh, the Brits said, ah, oh, no. We, we are interested in capitalism and free markets. Yeah. Essentially, they were drug pushers. Absolutely. <laughs> they, they, this was Britain as organised crime. Yeah, that's right. And um, there's not a lot of difference between government and organised crime when you, when you get down to it. It's just that one's legal and one's not. That's the only difference. And, yeah. and it's the government that decides. <laughs> it's, it's all about... Getting your product legalised. Yeah. So Britain went in there, started levelling cities and stuff with their, their armed uh, ships, and China was forced to, to open up and, and yeah. there you go. And uh, several hundred years of Chinese poor policy in not countering what Europe was doing came home. Because yeah. Because you know, in 1500s, there would have been no contest between Britain. I think it's poor policy in retrospect, though. Like, oh, it's yeah. perfectly understandable. You and I would have made the same decisions as the Chinese emperors at the time. Well, this, this is the point about... Because you, you certainly don't have a growth mindset. You don't have a capitalistic mindset. This all, this all was invented in Europe. I mean, in China, you, they were sitting pretty, they were happy. Correct. But, yeah. you know, it comes of being insular as well. We're not paying attention to what's happening in yeah. the rest of the yeah. world. So the future affects the present as yes. we were talking about before yeah. and if you haven't if you're not thinking about the future then things come undone even if you are thinking about future they can come undone but <laughs> that's another story another example is is the greek rebellion against their ottoman yes. rulers in 1821 there was a rebellion in greece and it was largely financed by a financial product called greek rebellion bonds right. traded on the london stock exchange yep uh, war itself had become a commodity for capitalists to profit on. Yes. When the Greek rebels started to lose, the British government intervened in the conflict and sank the main Ottoman fleet. Greece was finally freed, but they were saddled with this enormous debt. Correct. But we still have a member of the Greek royal family. It's now <clears throat> Prince of yeah. Edinburgh. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And the Greek marbles are still sitting uh, in London. Yes. Which probably sort of stems from this time. Yes. Um, so now the British investors were encouraged to dabble in overseas conflicts. Yes. Because um, they knew that if their investment was in trouble, they knew that the British government would intervene. So they'd set a precedent. Yes. The, the British government's gone to war now to protect yes. the, the investment of their capitalists. Um, to this day, a country's credit rating is far more important than its natural resources. And the example I always go to is places like Singapore and, you know, not a lot of natural resources, but one of the wealthiest places on the planet. No. Couldn't have done that 500 years ago. No, absolutely not. Um, whereas, you know, Africa, 
has remained quite poor in places like Congo. Huge natural resources. Yeah. But the course... Well, they've had their own history, the well, Congo. <laughs> political risk is very high. Yeah, and also what happened there from yeah. the Europeans yeah. uh, wasn't a great oh, start. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was Belgium. Yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't even the Belgian state. No. It was the Belgian Correct. king. Yes. Just did it on his own, his own private bloody yes. initiative, for want of a better word. Um, okay, so... It's time to take a break, Hutto, because we've been rabbiting on now for nearly an hour and we've got a fair bit more to cover. So okay. um, let's do that and I'll see you on the flip-flop. I look forward to it. The flip-flop. Okay, and welcome back, Hutto. Um, we've got a little bit... Uh, more left of this chapter of Harari's book to go and then we're going to get to the bit that I like the most the unanswerable questions I can just sit back and watch you squirm when you're trying to answer those <laughs> well you give me zero points for everything <laughs> I haven't given you zero for ages um, at least I haven't got to negative numbers yet oh, yeah. <laughs> so much to look forward to <laughs> that's right so um, we're talking about the relationship between capital capitalism and politics, mm. and they are tightly connected, um, but their inter interactions are still a source of um, vigorous debate to this day. And How much should uh, government get involved in capital? Yes. And your socialists think they should get involved quite a lot, and your capitalists don't think they should get involved very much at all. Either unless they're doing what the capitalists want, like um, dropping tax rates or freeing up labour markets. <laughs> yeah, or... Um, or bailing, bailing you out after a global financial crisis. Oh, indeed, or joining you in support of a war so you can keep selling opium to China. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so ardent capitalists argue that capital should be free to influence politics, but not the other way around. Politics mm. should stay out of capital. Yeah. <laughs> if governments interfere, um, political bias, biases lead to warps in the market, if you like, uh, and lead to non-optimal investment and a smaller pie for everybody. Well, there's truth in that, but there's also truth in the idea that capitalism unfettered chokes up free markets, leads to monopoly and oligopoly, yeah. and uh, basically becomes inefficient and reduces the pie. I mean, there's a solid argument in let's make the pie bigger, but then if you just completely ignore the distribution of the pie, yes. then you're really not telling a story at all. Yes. I mean, no one's going to argue that the pie should be bigger. <laughs> and, okay, look, my analogy is that capitalism is like the motor in a, uh, a vehicle. Yeah. It's the go, go, go. Yeah. And that's fine. But you also need steering and brakes. Yeah. And capitalism is not good for steering. And you need road safety rules because if you just go, 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 it doesn't matter who's in your way, you'll run them over. Exactly right. You'll right. get to the finish line first, but right. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a social good that you did. So I, I do not see cap, pure capitalism as an option, but it is a necessity. And you can see that when you look at communist China. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, necessity, I mean, it's a necessity if you want to keep growing the pie. Well, if you don't, look, the problem with Soviet Union, Cuba, China, North Korea was, yeah, they were distributing the wealth, but there was no wealth worth distributing. The other problem those guys had is that they had these capitalist societies that they were being compared to. I mean, if, 
if uh, if these societies had existed a thousand years ago, yes. then no one would have seen a problem with it. This is exactly right. Yeah. But it's also worth capitalism does result in more efficiency. Mm. But we can tackle some of these things in the questions. Yep. So, for example, heavy taxation on industry to finance unemployment benefits might be very popular politically for your yes. politicians. But capitalists argue that they should be able to keep their money to invest in more industries and hire the unemployed. Indeed, but they may also just invest in more technology and leave the unemployed. Oh yeah, or they could just funnel it away into a Swiss bank account and just, just build up their wealth, That's which right. doesn't really help anybody. Yeah. Um, the way to ensure, according to a capitalist, the highest economic growth is for the government to do as little as possible. And this way of thinking is known as the free market doctrine. Yeah. But there is a downside, as we've sort of Indeed. been alluding to. Economic growth, as we've explored, depends on trust. Yes. Um, which free markets have a hard time providing in all cases. Yes. Markets free of government interference offer no protection against fraud, theft or violence. Many other things, monopolies, you know, pricing, price collusion, you know, yeah. you could keep going. And or externalities such as environmental damage. And when it comes to things like defaulting on debt, you know, there's a bit of this idea of, yes, and I should be free to make mistakes and go broke and not pay my debtors and start up again. <laughs> yeah, with a limited liability company, yeah. <laughs> Argentina's perfected the art. Yeah. You know. And there is a, I mean, there is... Once again, there's some truth to that argument. Correct. I mean, limited liability serves the purpose of, of, of allowing people to take risks. Correct. But if you've got somebody who is just doing it all the time and losing money left, right and centre, yes. then it's not, it's not really a good we, thing. We have building companies in Australia who have done this several times. So. I know a certain building uh, property guy from New York whose uh, companies have gone bankrupt <laughs> on four occasions. I think I've heard of this guy too. <laughs> I can't remember his name. He's not, he's not very famous. Um, oh, well. Bump or something. <laughs> Tramp? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you have these externalities, uh, you know, if you have no protection against fraud, theft or violence, you need the government to step in to provide these safeguards, which will then maximise trust yes. and therefore economic growth, which I think is a good argument. So yes. generally when we talk about government interference, we're talking about, okay, we're going to make we're going to make the pie a bit smaller, but we're at least going to make it fairer. Correct. But this argument is saying, hang on, the government is essential to build trust in the future, yes. which is where the growth all comes from. Yes. And that's, uh, that's a good argument. There's another argument too, which is capitalism in itself is basically just an equation. So things like labour cost is just an input factor in the equation, a resource cost. Yeah. Things like the environment, use of fresh water, pollution of fresh water, air, stuff like this, which are held by the community, as it were, Mm. need to be costed in as part of the equation. Otherwise, yeah. a capitalist enterprise will just use as much of it as it can get its hands on yeah. it's a free good. Yeah. Um, so you need government to be costing in things like air, water, pollution. Yes, and that's what I'm concerned about the environment, and that's all I want. I, I want to use the market, if you like. I want to use pricing yep. to help the environment, but you're going to need the government to come in and add that pricing. Yes. So if you pollute, you can pollute that lake if you want to, but it's going to cost you a billion dollars. Yes. So then you'll find companies are going to be like, oh, hang on, maybe we're better off if we don't That's pollute right, the lake. That's right, because capitalism is the most efficient wealth production method we have, provided 
the inputs are costed properly. Yeah, yeah. But if you don't cost that stuff... If you just do the private side of the, the transaction... That's right. ...then all these costs and some benefits don't get counted. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so... Greed is good, according to um, the movie Wall Street, of, yeah, uh, Gild, is, Gordon Gecko. It is, yeah. Um, but is greed actually beneficial for all? So what happens if, for example, the greedy capitalist increases his profits, not by opening more factories and making more investments, but by paying his workers less and making them work longer hours? Is everybody better off in that situation, Hutto? Well, I can think of one guy that is. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that, of course, is a problem. Now, if the employees have superannuation funds that are invested in the business, it, it gets complicated. Well, yeah, I mean, and I like that idea too. I love the idea. I mean, I've, I've been a, a wage earner, you know, for most of my life. And one thing, I hate to say this, I don't give a shit how much money the owners make. I mean, I, I never really did. I mean, I was there for my career to do my job and hopefully get a pay rise, and I cared about my role. Yeah. But, I mean, you can't expect me to get motivated by, a, you know, a multimillionaire who's who's my employer. Well... You know, but if you could figure out a way to give everybody some percentage ownership of the business they're in, yeah. then all of a sudden I feel like motivation go through the roof. And there are... Uh business structures set up that way of course yeah. and that's another thing yeah. um, you of course were working in a firm of accountants and you were doing the IT role so becoming part of the partnership wasn't really an option no you. that's true so that's the carrot that gets dangled in front of a lot of people as well it's like oh okay well I don't really care now but in 10 years time yeah. I'll be a partner and all of a sudden I will care yeah but I was probably in a, an unusual position there yeah um, so in terms of paying workers less money for longer hours, free market theory would actually say that's fine. Yes. Right? Because, well, hang on, the employees can go and get, a, get another job if they yeah. want. Like, no one's forcing them to stay there. That's fine in theory, but in practice, um, capitalists can establish monopolies. So there may not be any alternative factory for you to go and work in. Yeah. Or they can collude with... If there's three factories doing the same thing, yep. you can collude with the other factory owners to ensure that there are no other higher paying jobs. And you can also, of course, replace jobs with technology, which gets back to that $8,800 per capita um, gross contribution figure that Harari yep. noted. Yep. What's really happening is you've got one employee in 10 making $80,000 productivity with the help of technology yeah and nine other workers were laid off yeah yeah yep that's true um so at its worst when this is just allowed to let rip this can lead to debt bondage or slavery yes uh it's no coincidence that the rise of slavery in the european economy coincided with the rise of capitalism Right. The whole slave trade was essentially a capitalistic enterprise. Just as selling opium to China was too. Um, yeah. And the other problem I have with, you know, we abolished slavery and gave you the freedom to starve. I'm yeah. not sure that it's an improvement. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, you're starting to sound like a bullshit, hello. <laughs> <laughs> I had you pegged for a capitalist. <laughs> far from it. I, I fully appreciate the benefits of capitalism, yep. but I appreciate the downsides yep. too. Uh, but, you know, like most things, I believe that the, the right answer lies somewhere in the middle. Yes. Um, 
So the Atlantic slave trade was an example of wasn't a government wasn't a government thing. No, it was free market being allowed to let rip. Yes, but then so was the British East India Company and VOC. Yeah. Um, this was free market taking over the world, and yeah. of course, it's another of the options is forget democracy and go back to corporatocracies. Yeah. Yeah. And multinationals rule. I'll have to think about maybe we'll talk about that at a length later on to explore some different models. And different models, different book. Yeah. So free market capitalism cannot ensure that profits are earned in a fair way or distributed in a fair manner. Growth at all costs can lead to catastrophe. So Harari uses the example of Nazism, not as a capitalist example, but as a, an example of killing millions of people out of burning hatred. Yes. But capitalism killed just as many people, if not more, through cold indifference or unbridled greed. Correct. As far as capitalism is concerned, people's labour is a number. Yep. It has no empathetic meaning. Yep. And there is supposed to be such a thing as compassionate capitalism. Um, I'm still dubious about it. It's a bit of a contradiction in terms, in a sense. I mean... Capitalism, in a sense, you can think of it in a purely hypothetical theoretical sense. It's just a machine that yes. creates growth and wealth. Yes. Um, okay, humans can come in and insert some compassion into that. Yeah. But the odds are you're going to need that externally regulated. You can't yes. really rely on the, the ethics of each individual who's got power in the That's system. That's correct. And yeah. the corporatisation actually makes that more so because your executive management is there to increase the profits for the for somebody else not to care about the yeah baby. it's a bit like following orders yes. uh, in the ss yes. it's like oh, i was just following orders yeah. and you can sit on a board and do all these um unethical things and go well hang on i'm just trying to maximize the shareholders um, and it's I've almost been, like nobody ta has to take responsibility correct, for and it. i've been in the position of being on boards and yeah. found myself trapped into doing things i didn't really want to do as a human being yeah so that makes you a bad person well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was only joking. <laughs> so the Industrial Revolution enriched bankers and capitalists, but subject, subjected millions to a life of abject suffering and poverty. Yes. Inequities are still rampant in the capitalist world. The pie is larger than ever, yes. but distributed unevenly. Will the growth of the modern economy turn out to be a colossal fraud like the agricultural revolution? I, I, I really thought that was a good question. It is a good question, and I think we're seeing it with COVID-19 in the USA. What exactly is the point of having a strong economy yeah, if, if, if you're it's dying. not protecting your people from... I agree with you. I mean, the last four or five months, you know, the Australian economy has declined, and I'm on certainly on a you know, half the income that I was before. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I mean, I'm still surviving. I've got a roof over my head and I'm quite happy. I'm working, I'm working less hard. And for some of these wealthier countries, you sort of look at recessions as the end of the world because you've had two quarters of negative growth. I mean, who cares if we had two quarters of negative growth? Now, you, you've got people that actually do live in poverty in these rich countries, and you know, yes. it can be a matter of life and death for some people, and that yes. matters. Yes. But for 90% of your population, it, it doesn't really matter. You know, if, if, you, if you don't, can't pay off your boat, you know, in, you know, you have to take three years instead of two years. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Well, as long as we've got trust in the future and things are going to get better, uh, yes. I, I, you know, I'm not devastated that we're not going to have economic growth this year. That's a luxury I can afford because I live in such a wealthy country. No, that's true. Yeah. Now, we are looking at, you know, Britain, for example, is going through its worst recession possibly ever. There's great comparisons to the Great Depression. Well, my understanding is that depression is two years of negative growth. Is that your understanding as well? Uh, I No, I understood that... Actually, I'd, I'd need to fact-check I just came across that idea a week or so ago. I think it was on the news, and they were talking about the recession. It probably might be a depression. And they mentioned two years of negative right. growth. And, I mean, yeah, I, I'll probably have to Google it myself. Sure. But um, we're, certainly, well, we're not two years into... But right. I wouldn't be surprised if we do have two years of negative growth. Well, I, I agree. It looks to be on the cards. And the issue you've got is that the belief in the future starts to drop. Yeah. And given the amount of credit around in the world, that has serious consequences. Yes, yeah. And we, we might be able to look to Japan as almost like a forerunner for that yes. type of economy. It's just sort of stagnant. Yes. And you, you don't want to go and buy a house because it's going to be worth 10% less next year. And yeah. so it kills your whole economy in yeah. a sense, or dampens it. Yeah. Now, you know, inflation, deflation, one would expect considerable inflation to come out of the amount of money printing at the same time that the quantity of goods and services produced is dropping. Well, the latest sort of fairly strong rumour out of the States is that uh, the stock market is being primed, pump primed by Federal Federal Reserve money. Yes. So that the actual crash won't take place until Joe Biden presumably wins the election. Yes, sure. Uh, so, I mean, you know... They, they, you know, this is not good. So we've, we've got a stock market in the States that's looking pretty healthy. Yeah. And the real economy around it is falling apart. Correct. Now, there's a couple of things there. We're getting deeper into economics here. But <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we, we are on the topic of, of credit, money and capitalism. Yeah. Um, one issue is I actually predicted that there would be a crash in 2021 anyway after a Trump re-election. COVID-19 upset that. Yeah. That yeah. Card. But yeah. I thought... The pump priming and the American monetary policies were going to lead to that crash anyway. Yeah. And now that's going to be much worse. The second thing is you have to consider that to some extent the stock market is simply showing inflation. The last thing I want mm. to be holding at present is cash. Yeah. So I invest in stocks and shares yeah. or property. Yeah, yeah. So the number I saw today was something like one point, it might have been, it was either 1.2 or 2.1 trillion. That's been put into the stock market by the, the Federal Reserve over there. Yes. Wow. Yeah. At some point, that money's got to come from somewhere. We are talking huge numbers, and it's happening all around. Ah, the scientists will fix it. The scientists and technologists. <laughs> well, yeah, they've got to produce a COVID vaccine. That's, uh... <laughs> they might have to cut. They might have to cut some um, cut some funding to the scientific education for a while. But uh... well, I just I just read a Cora admin statement about how Cora is going to go to working from home as their policy. Oh, in the, inside their business. Yes. Yeah. And um, I think they're going to be the first of many. Mm. I think um, there's been studies done on this and it turns out from a productivity point of view, it's good to have, say, three days working from home and a couple of days in the office. And I find that in my life, no matter what you do all the time, it gets stale and you start to get bored mm. and you get less productive. I'd, I'd love to be able to work from home three days a week and go into an office two days a week. Right. Well, <clears throat> there's issues regarding 
office rental spaces in Well, exactly. In I mean, it costs money. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> All sorts of issues. Yeah, I'm not saying it's the best economic right. thing. I'm just saying from an employee point of view, which is probably yeah. my, uh, my mentality, um, it's nice to mix it up a bit. A lot depends on what your home environment is. Yeah. Um, but anyway, there's a, a very good article on all that in Cora setting out the pros and cons and what the majority of workers want. But I don't think we'll be returning to what was before. Yeah, yeah. So uh, back to the topic at hand, we're talking about you know some of the issues with capitalism. How, does, how do capitalists respond to these criticisms? And... Harari gives a couple of answers, neither of which are um, acceptable in my view, but let's see what you think. Firstly, the horse is bolted. (laughs) So a bit like the agricultural revolution, there's no going back. Um, The capitalist world has become so complex that only a capitalist can run it. Uh, And things like communism and other things that have been tried just didn't really cut it. So really that argument boils down to, well, what else are you going to do? Well the first thing you're going to do is run a mix. Yeah. Um, and the second thing you're going to look at is <clears throat> centrally planned economies could not work because the computations were really too complex to do without the pricing mechanism. Yeah. But as computers become more and more AI and complex, etc., alternative possibilities do open up. Yeah. And the second uh, defence that capitalists use to criticisms is that just be patient and the distribution of the pie will become more equitable. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, that wasn't supposed to be funny, but I just couldn't say it with a straight face. <laughs> a rising tide lifts all boats, yeah. Well, the thing is, there's some truth to that as well. If yes. you've got a much bigger pie, yep. in a sense... Um, I mean, capitalism has lifted a lot of Chinese out of poverty. Oh, you know, it, 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 do, it does do that. Yes. Um, you know, I, I certainly don't think capitalism is a bad thing, but uh, you can tweak it and improve it. That's yes. really my, yes. my main point. Look, um, I, I have a background of expertise in systems, and the first thing you realise is that what you need most is the thing that you are lacking most. Yeah. So if what you lack is a engine for your car, which is what communist China lacked, mm. adding some capitalism to the system will lift 400 million people out of poverty. Yeah. But if what you lack is brakes and steering, yeah. then that's what you need to add, put yeah. some socialism into the capitalist mix. Yeah, yeah. And that's what most countries do, I suppose. Yes. I mean, even America, which is probably the most capitalistic country in the world, there's a lot of socialism going on over there. I and mean, you've still got police force and military and... Well, I don't know if they have public hospitals over there. Health's an interesting issue over there. But there's still a lot of social good and social capital. They've got uh, hospitals for vet... Um, Military vets. Yeah, yeah. etc. So there's at least some. Yeah. Um, now, the other thing which hasn't been mentioned here, in fact, Harari does not mention it in his whole book, yep. is corruption. Yes. But corruption is, in fact, a very big player in the world, and in the current world, it's a huge player. Yeah. Um, there are estimates by the UN that over $2 trillion a year is being money laundered mm. from illegal profits, and that 50% of all legitimate businesses have been purchased by money which was illegally made. Um, So when you look at a country like Nigeria, which is supposedly democratic, capitalist and oil rich, 
there's extensive poverty there, much of it resulting from corruption. Yeah, and that, that, that's why it's not a wealthy place, because the trust hasn't been allowed to build Correct. up yet. And it's, it's give it all, time, give it time. And it's also that the rich are taking over the government. Yes, as tends to happen. As tends to happen. So, yeah, in... Um, you know, there's no difference between Britain selling opium into China and organised crime doing its thing in the world today mm. in real terms, particularly where it starts to be sponsored within state organisations. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a smuggling racket into North Korea that's, you know, an industry in itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have to do a book on... Uh on what do we call organised crime at some point? Well, it's difficult to obtain the facts in, in these cases, of course. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's definitely something which needs to be mentioned in this context yeah. because organised crime is also capitalism in a form. It's well, I suppose it is in a form, but if you're talking about corruption, that's like a human aspect. No matter what human system you have, corruption is going to be, going to be an issue. Correct. But yeah. if you're going to say greed is good... This is where you go next. Yeah, yeah. So my final statement for the whole chapter is a question. Can the economic pie grow indefinitely? That's the other sort of question. I mean, even if capitalism was perfect and there were no losers and blah, 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 would it be able to just keep going on forever? I mean, we've, the, the scientists and technologists have been footing the bill. Yes. For the, for the last 500 years. And You'd imagine there'd be some point where that can no longer happen i mean maybe not i mean but we're so we're so used to growth and things improving that we you know we almost can't get outside of that paradigm okay the biosphere has also been topping the bill yeah now when you had 500 million human beings yeah. you could have relatively inefficient production techniques yeah. and the biosphere was large enough to cope yeah when you're talking 8 billion people, it's a different story, particularly mm. at the higher standard of living. Mm. So no, the Earth cannot support 100 billion people living well, even with highly efficient technology. Yeah. Um, population control has to be considered. Yeah. All right, so that's the end of my hard part. Hello, I get to my easy part now because it's time for unanswerable questions. Indeed, and you've come up with some beauties here today, I see. Well, I've got ten for you, and I've also, as per your request, you asked me to revisit a couple of questions from our last uh, podcast because you you think that we can shed some more light on the topics, I, given I, that we've given that we've now explored the whole capitalism. Thing. Indeed. Yeah. So my first question to you, hello, is does money make the world go round? Yeah, there was a question on Cora about. How important is money in the economy? And I actually said, go and read chapter 16 of Harari's book, Sapiens. And check out our podcast. <laughs> and check out, because Harari's point is that, you know, this is what made Europe effectively dominate the world. The European languages, European clothing, European, to some extent, European religions, um, the whole reason the Western world has become so dominant as a part of the world is because they caught on to money and capitalism yeah. and credit. And credit. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to say, unfortunately, look, power makes the world go round. Yeah. Money is only one form of power, but it's a very convertible form of power. The other thing that I think, what about love? Does love make the world go round? 
Or is that a form of power? Well, love is also a form of former power. It's a kind of former social power. Just have yeah. a look at things like The Bachelor and Love Island and all yeah. these sort of things. Yeah. Um, and you can... So power makes the world go round. Okay? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good answer. I'm going to give you one for that, Harvey. Oh, good. A whole one. Well done. <laughs> so my next question is, is of a personal nature. I, I read that um, we have we produce... Well, I don't know if do we produce it annually or whether this is the total amount in the world, but there's $60 trillion in global production right. in the world. Yeah. I think, is that per annum? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, okay. So where's my, where's my part? Okay. Um, <laughs> That's my question. Now, this, this is my bad news for you, Matt. Yeah. You're getting your share. <laughs> you, you go and talk. Oh, my God. It's sad but true. You go and talk to <laughs> half a million... Half a billion people in India yeah. who don't have access to a toilet, yeah. they're the ones who are not getting their share. Yeah. You go and talk to Bill Gates, he's a guy who's got more than his share. Yeah. Well, that was, um, that was confronting, yeah, accurate. So I'm going to give you one for that as well. Two out of two. Because you told me what I didn't want to hear, but yet you said it anyway. Indeed. And you, uh, you told me I'm worthless and weak, but that's okay, we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> I think I should stop with two. <laughs> My next question. Is the invention of capitalism the biggest driver of history in the modern period? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, we know what the big three are. I mean, the I mean, Harari probably answers this question in his book, and I'm, once again, sorry, I'm butting in, but I want to talk too sometimes. Um, you know, Harari would say... Capitalism, science, and empire. Yes, wouldn't he? So he anyway, would. that's a bit of extra information for you. Um, I think, I think you could say that such things as greed and male insecurity are part of the drivers. But of course, greed is good. Flows straight into capitalism. Yeah, the only thing I'd say about that though is those things aren't five hundred years old. Those things have been around forever. Correct. So I don't think you can say that they're that you know the changes that have taken place in the five hundred years you can't put down to greed and male insecurity. Okay. What I would say, therefore, is that capitalism has been an enabler for greater greed. In yeah. the past, it was the greed of kings that mattered. Yeah. And they'd go off and start another war. Yeah. Um, capitalism enabled private enterprise to get in on the act. Yeah. Yeah. If you had to choose between capitalism, science, and empire in the last 500 years, as what, what would you say wins? What's the most powerful? I, I don't think it falls apart like that. I think yeah. Harari's right, that yeah. the three together, the discovery of America and the pillaging of America yeah. um, underlay the growth and expansion of the Western yeah. world. So you can't have one without the Correct. other. Correct. Yeah. No, I think you're right, unfortunately. I'd love to give you zero, but no, I'm, I'm happy with that. Now, a question that I've often wondered. So one of the arguments, and, and Harari used it, an ardent capitalist would say, well, hang on, don't, don't increase our taxes and pay unemployed people not to work. Give, leave the money with us so we can build a new factory and employ them. My question is, does the provision of Social Security actually make a nation poorer. Right. And the reason I, uh, I I wonder whether it does, because what happens with the money that the poor get 
is it goes straight back out into the economy. Yes. Now, it, it's not going into investment. They're no. not building factories and starting businesses. Sometimes they do, but yeah. you know, generally that money's going out in consumption. So I'm going to answer my question before I get to you. But I suppose for every dollar that someone receives in Social Security, if it's spent on consumption, that's fine. It would be better if it was spent in investment because that dollar could, could mean 10 more dollars down the track, whereas consumption is, is really... You know, yeah. fairly. You know, one dollar is one dollar for now. Because um, I, our social security in Australia is completely unacceptable. So it's a, if you're unemployed here, you can get payments from the government, but it's essentially half of the poverty line, right? Right. And you can't live on it. And long-term unemployed people, intergenerational unemployed people, their lives are just a mess because of poverty. Yes. And the argument for not paying them is, well, it's too expensive. You know, we can't afford it. But I'm like, well, how much does it really cost to give someone an extra two or $300 a week so they can at least have a full belly and maybe get a suit to get a job? You know, how much is it costing the nation for us to be yeah. able to do that? Right. The answer, once again, is um, this isn't a yes, no, black and white thing. It is nuanced and balanced. Yeah. There's no point in investing in new factories if there's no consumption, mm. if Nobody can afford to buy anything. Yeah. Stanislav Lem wrote a beautiful uh, science fiction book based on that, where mm. basically a computer was put in charge of making a perfect world and um, it got rid of all the people. <laughs> <laughs> the, you need consumption, you need investment, but you can have too much of a good thing. I would suggest that the world at present is absolutely awash in cheap capital. Yeah. It's not, you know, you're barely paying any interest on it. It's not having to pass any hurdle rates. Yep. The problem with that is money gets invested in building nonsensical projects like a bridge to Indonesia or something. Mm. Um, this, this is of no use to anybody. Mm. But it hasn't had to pass any return on investment criteria because people are almost paying you to use the money. Mm. At the same time, if the poor have not got enough to purchase anything... There's no, there will be no investment in factories. Okay, so let place. me think about this. So if the government's giving money to the poor, the government doesn't get a high return on investment for that, for that spend, apart from the social capital. They have, they've basically lifted everybody in the country above the poverty line. So you've, you know, to me, you've got a better, better yes, country. but not... You have to remember that if the government is taxing on transaction taxes which is very much the case in Australia, yeah, for so, example. Yeah, well, we've got a 10% Correct. goods and services tax. We automatically do have money coming back in from, yeah. from that purchase. So, to me, it's not the best... If you're looking at it from a capitalistic point of view, it's not the best use of your money from a return on investment point of view, but it's certainly not the worst. It's not the worst. And so then it becomes a matter of opinion whether you should do it or not. And to me, it's a no-brainer. Well, it's not just opinion. There is an answer, but... It can be hard to discern the answer. It's yeah. like the Laffer's curve I referred to earlier. Yeah. It's undoubtedly true that at some point you can reduce taxes and get more return. Yeah. And there's undoubtedly a question at some point where if you increase taxes, you get less return. Yeah. Identifying where that point is is the tricky bit. Yeah. Now, it's the same thing with this. Social security, you're looking at a mix. There are times when investment in capital is what, short and therefore what matters. Mm. There are times when 
consumption, spending power, social security is the most important thing for making a vibrant economy. Mm. In this COVID-19 world, most of the governments have recognised that enabling people to keep paying their bills and their mortgages and living is what will keep an economy going, maintain confidence in the future and stop massive default, loss of belief in the system and massive suffering and a drop in the tax base that comes from that. Mm. Um, but where the balance point is, isn't just a matter of opinion, it is a matter of fact. Mm. Bearing in mind we're living with a, a chaotic chaos two system, and so what people believe is a major driver on what will actually happen. Mm. Mm. So my answer to it would be, from a strictly economic capitalist, capitalistic point of view, it's not your highest return on investment for your money for the government. Yeah, in, but, in some cases it is. Yeah, yes, but generally not. You could you probably better off putting in a Bitcoin or, you know, whatever. Well, I'm sure there'd be a better return. Just let me finish okay, my yeah. statement. So what I'm thinking is, yeah, from a pure, strictly rational economic point of view, it may not be a great return on investment. But from a humanitarian point of view, to me, it's a no-brainer and it makes your country a better place and it's better for everybody. Well, you've introduced what is actually... A second argument, which is that governments are about governing for the people and... In theory, yeah. Well, in theory, yeah. Um, and the human aspect needs to be brought into the picture. And what is the point of having a strong economy if it's not doing anything for the people? Yeah. Um, now, there is one other aspect which needs to be brought in concerning the level of a basic basic income or social security. Universal basic income. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is the level at which you set it. We've already got a situation in Australia at present, for example, where there's some Uber Eats drivers who are saying, you know, if social security just went up another $100 a week, I wouldn't bother to drive Uber Eats at all. Yeah because the return's not there. Yep. And then you've got Uber saying, we're now having to pay more money because the government is paying out so much Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. So, yeah, it would, might cost, end up costing um, companies or businesses more money as well. Correct. Because you're competing with leisure, in a sense. Correct. But I'm only talking about people being on $500 a week. It's no, it's not, not living high on the hog. No, it's but not. But at the moment in Australia, it's like 280 a week. Well, I don't can't know. Live on it. I do not know any Uber Eats drivers who are living high on the hog. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they're, maybe they're delivering some pork, I don't know. <laughs> Unless they're delivering something a lot more than food. Mm. Well, we better move on because I've got seven more questions and about 12 minutes to cover them in. So let's uh, keep it efficient. So my next question, is greed good? Uh, basically, no, but once again, it's not all bad. Okay. And I will leave it at that. Yeah, fair enough. My next question after that, should we eat the rich? Uh, yeah, look, it's a popular pastime <laughs> with everyone except the rich. <laughs> yeah, so Sid Vicious and uh, and uh, Johnny Rotten, you know, they yeah. would have, they would have they would have loved this, yes, uh, loved yes. this sort of talk. Um, look, realistically, no. Um, although there are some rich that you might be inclined to put on the menu. <laughs> 
Okay, my next question, do business people invest and employ more people when profits increase? Uh, Which is the capitalist yes, argument, that's right. Adam Smith's argument. Um, the problem is that Adam Smith was writing, technology was becoming important at that stage. We were talking about entering the age of steam and stuff like this, but he, he had no idea of what technology can do, you know, AI, computers, ordering Uber drivers where to go and all this sort of thing, market enablers, the majority of stock transactions being performed by computers. Um, so the answer to the question is, all too often, businesses employ more technology rather than more people. Um, That's now, investment. Yes. Now, people, people are involved in new technologies, and those new, the increased earnings per person can support a lot of unemployed people and a universal basic income or whatever. Yeah. But it's not as simple as businesses employ more people when profits increase. Sometimes they do, all too often they don't, and not all people are equal. They're often after specific skills. Now, it's been estimated, for example, that we could increase productivity by 147% if we allowed anybody in the world to work anywhere there was a job for them? Yeah. Um, complex question. So my answer would be no, definitely not. Business people don't employ more people when their profits increase. They employ more people when their sales increase and to keep up with the demand. Uh, I mean, if you, uh, if, you, if you make $2 million, if you made a, make a million dollars a year and then you make $2 million the next year, you don't go out and double your employees. No. You only do that if you need to. Correct. It's got nothing to do with the profits. Yeah. So the, so the richer and richer that certain people get, the more dead money, in a sense, you have in your economy, unless they happen to be going off starting new businesses. But, you know. Uh, you're, you're correct. It's also about business opportunities more than existing business. Yep. So... My next question is a biblical question, uh, Hutto. Yes. You might have to first uh, go through this parable for us, but uh, is the parable of the talents in the Bible an early application of capitalism? Now, my first, before you answer that question, the parable of the talents, I'll get you to run through that with us, but was that a parable that Jesus used? Was it that was, from the New Testament? It okay. was a parable that Jesus used. It was about a rich man who was about to travel away, who left his... Uh, his wealth in the hands of three of his faithful servants. One he gave something like a hundred talents, one he gave something like ten talents, and one he gave one talent. Yep. And the one who had a hundred talents invested it and charged usury, interest rates, etc. Yeah. And made him a packet of money and he was happy when he returned. And the one who had ten talents did quite well too. And the one who had one talent was very risk averse and said, my master will kill me if I lose this. And he went and buried it under the mattress. Yeah. And when he returned, he said, here it is, master, I've kept it safe for you. And master was not happy <laughs> and took away his talent and gave it to one of the other servants who'd done more with it. Yeah. And it is almost the only parable, only story in the entire Bible which has anything to do with wealth generation. Mm. Um, now, Jesus was talking in terms of being a good servant of God, and therefore... Yeah, so to, to those who are given much, much as expected. Exactly right, yeah. yes. So um, he was saying, you know, you are supposed to bear fruit. 
and what is given to you is, is given to you for, yeah. and he who does well with what's given to him will be given more. Yeah. Um, however, it does tie in with the whole idea of capitalism and economic thinking, which is that you should use wealth <coughs> to produce more I wealth. I think you've answered the question for me. I think if you take these talents as a metaphor for personal abilities, yes. then it all makes sense in a biblical context. If you take it as Jesus really... Because capital, as we've discussed in this chapter, capitalism wasn't even a thing then. You weren't really expected to go out and grow your money. Correct. Perhaps with some urshery, as yeah. you said, though. And, and, he, and Jesus was speaking to Jews. Yes. So perhaps he thought, well, this is something they understand. Yes. But, you know, he's saying, I want you to sort of make the most of what you're given. I don't think he's necessarily arguing for capitalism 1,500 years before no, it was he invented. Was, <laughs> he was not. It, it, Jesus' message... Yeah, Jesus will not touch economics. So given the coin, he says, you know, whose head is on this coin? It is Caesar's. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Yeah. And render unto God that which is God's. He wasn't touching economics. He wasn't talking about it. Mm. Which I think is actually a defect because, as I've said before, I do not see poverty as a virtue. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it wasn't his field necessarily. Um, yeah. Okay, so my next question is, did the Dutch invent capitalism? Uh, because they, they, I, I believe they invented the limited liability company. Yeah. And there was something else. Oh, stock exchange. Yes. They invented the stock exchange. Yes. Yeah. Um, they invented important parts of capitalism. It had been done before. I, I, the ascent of money, for example, will talk about the city-states at war with each other yeah. in Italy. And how the most successful ones were the ones which could borrow and raise most money and most yeah, credit okay. and that sort of thing. Okay. So the Dutch certainly, they took it to the next level. Yes. They refined it. Okay. That's, that's, that's a, I'll give you a tick for that. Okay. Um, now, in this chapter, um, we haven't spoken about it, and you might want to elaborate over a couple of minutes, but... Um, there was this thing called the Mississippi Bubble, which Indeed. was essentially a big bubble in the French markets. I'll it let was, you talk yes. about it. Um, did the Mississippi Bubble lead to the rise of Britain as the world's great power? Um, well, indirectly, the Mississippi Bubble... So what, 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 what just quickly, yeah. what was the Mississippi Bubble? Well, to, to begin okay. With? There was a guy who was actually English and Scottish. He... Oh, yeah, he, wa yeah, he, he was a Scotsman, wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that, because Harari didn't mention it. He had a great idea. Jock McAdams? Yeah. Was, <laughs> I just made that yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he had this great idea of how to sort of run capitalist monetary systems and central banks, and the French king... Louis was, XV, I think it was. Yeah, was yeah. foolish enough to give him the chance, and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, he did a great job. And in many ways, his ideas were quite good, but he took them too far too soon and didn't know when to stop. Yeah. He therefore managed to get not only the French equivalent of a development country company like the VOC, yeah. um, trying to develop Mississippi, which... Yeah, like the Mississippi River, like New Orleans area yeah, in, exactly. in the New no, World. You know, yeah. It all happened in time, but at the time it was a swamp, and the swamp it would remain for quite some and time. And he was talking it up like it was oh, Las Vegas. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and, of course, there wasn't much in the way of communication to <laughs> check out what was really happening. And we, we've seen the same thing happen with Chinese companies, even in the year 2000, etc. 
Um, it wasn't so easy to find out what was happening in China either for yeah. American investors. Yeah. But what he managed to do was create possibly the biggest bubble in history, although Dutch tulips, of course, was in there too. Um, and he also he got the Central Bank of France, which was effectively the Royal Treasury, also involved as an investor. Yeah. So when the whole bubble collapsed, it took basically all of the kings and all of the country's central bank wealth and everything. Yeah, so essentially how that happened, I suppose, is word got back to France that you could make money by buying this particular company on the the stock exchange. And the people that did it made a real lot of money early on. The ones first in and first out, as in any pyramid. Correct, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then uh, more people got in, more people got in. People started selling all, putting their life savings in, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Then it all crashed in and about a day. Then it all crashed, yeah. And and like you say, the, the French king and the bank and all that were involved and, in it. And so they essentially lost all their money and France was essentially bankrupt for the next century or so. Yeah. And in that time, Britain was able to become the you know, Britain well, happened the, to win wars the against French France. The French king or the succeeding the French king to raise finances. Well, basically he couldn't pay. So then to raise finances because He'd also put this, I think it was Law's character, in charge of all the revenues coming in, the tax <laughs> revenues. This, this was a big mess. Um, this is how the Barings Bank went broke. Oh, the, the guy in uh, Singapore or wherever he was, he basically was doing all the trading yeah. and doing all the books. That's <laughs> a, the, 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 the back office is supposed to restrict what the front <laughs> office is doing. <laughs> but when you're pioneering things on the other side of the world, you can see how it can happen. Absolutely. Anyway, the result was that the French king had to recall Parliament for the first time in 150 years. Yeah, but that, that was a bit later, funding. though. So that was Louis the Sixteenth that did that. Well, he, he inherited this. Yeah, he inherited it. And uh, the next... It, because the French king went broke and therefore couldn't raise any credit. Yeah. The inheriting French king then has to summon Parliament, yeah. and that eventually led to the French Revolution. Well, fairly Revolution. quickly led to yeah. the French Revolution. Then you get Napoleon uh, in charge a few years yeah. later, and he ended up selling all that territory to the to the Americans anyway for, for a pittance. Well, it, it, it was the best deal he could make at the time. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't in a position to defend it, Yeah, because um, the British Navy ruled the waters. Yeah, yeah. yeah the Americans have made a few savvy uh, land purchases over the They have. Louisiana Purchase, um, Manhattan. Yeah. And um, they bought off the Dutch for not yeah. much. And um, Alaska, they yes. bought off the Russians. And um, someone on Cora asked the other day why so many of the Native American Indians sided with the British in the War of Independence. Well, the answer was the Americans weren't treating them too well. Well, that's right. In fact, that was a big part of why the Americans revolted, because the Brits were saying, no, we don't want you going west of the... uh, Applications, the yeah, those mountains. That's right. Because that's where Appala- the natives are. Appalachians. Appalachians. Yeah. That's where the natives are, and and but the locals, no, they were pretty keen to get out there and get yeah. some more land. All right, so um, we've got about five minutes, hello, and I've got. I want to revisit two of last week's questions in a new context. So number eight, or was eight from last week, but it's number eleven this week. Are we seeing a return to the mean in terms of the economic world order, i.e. the rise of Asia, particularly India and China? Um, 
Yes, to some extent. I nevertheless think that we're probably going to continue to see English stand, for example, as the lingua franca. I think we're going to see a basically Western world um, legal system. It's, it's developing in China, it will develop further and this sort of thing. So while Asia has the mass in terms of numbers and also plenty of resources, um, I think generally we're just starting to move towards an increasing degree of globalization, as Harari would put it. Mm. How we get from 200 nations to a global government is one of the big challenges. Yeah, well, I don't think that's happening anytime soon. I mean, I do believe that's a possibility in the future, but it's not something I'm hanging my hat on, because if that's, that's going to happen, that, that's 500 years away. Well... According to Harari, it's more likely to be 100 years. Yeah, okay. Um, that, well, that's true. I just plucked 500 out of the air as I want but to do. Remember that thing? Cognitive revolution, 70,000 years. Agricultural revolution, 12,000 years. Scientific revolution, 5,100 years. The last step is probably going to be within 100 years. Yeah, I just don't see a global government as being the last step in that chain. Well, that's complete unification. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. It is in that sense. You're right. Good yeah. point. Okay. So that that gets us to the end of our questions. So I've asked you 11 questions, and you actually did well this week, much to my disappointment. I'm going to give you 8.5 out of 11. Good grief. Yeah, that might be your high score ever. Yeah, Probably will be, and I suspect you're going to make sure that it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly my questions aren't unanswerable, uh, not difficult enough. Right, okay. So I need to work on that for next week. Indeed. <laughs> mm. They're still good questions, Matt. No, they are good questions. That's why I do it, because yeah. they're questions that have occurred to me while, while we're going through it, and I thought, ah, I can't be bothered researching this, I'll just ask Hutto. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, half the time he gets it right, so, you know, it's, it's a win-win. Um, all right, so that's the end of our podcast uh, for this time. And uh, thanks for uh, enlightening me, as you always do. And um, thanks for the opportunities. And I look forward to the flip-flop. All right, see you then. La, 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 la.